once stood by himself in a field that was destroyed. There was rubble, utter destruction around him. His friends gone, and he was the last man standing. This man, to the world's perspective, is a symbol of humility. He's a symbol of someone who always fights to do the right thing. He's a symbol of, of good. Yet here he stands, no matter that he's facing his greatest enemy and that his enemy's army, and he knows he's going to lose, but yet he still stands. Of course, I'm talking about Captain America, who with his unbreakable shield was, was broken. He was defeated, and yet he still stands there between us and an army of Thanos. But as you know, if you've ever seen Avengers Endgame, he starts to get hope when he hears in his right ear three words, on your left. And all of a sudden, sparkles start shining up in the sky, big circles start opening up, and all of a sudden, heroes that we thought dead, heroes that we thought were lost, all of a sudden walk through. We have Black Panther, we have the Guardians of the Galaxy, we have Spider-Man swing on through, and everyone cheered because we all thought he died. But only that, all of the friends who were, were beaten rise up again, and there's a sense of hope. Captain America catches a magical hammer, Mjolnir, that's how you pronounce it, it's called Mjolnir, or Mew Mew. <laughs> and he utters the words, Avengers assemble, and everyone has a big, loud, loud battle cry, and we witness a great battle of epic proportions that, if you watch the movie, you enjoyed. Even if you've never seen Avengers Affinity War and knew that the, the heroes that were once lost are now back, you can still appreciate the situation. But those who've watched every single movie know that this is the first time in 10 years that all the things are coming together for, for this scene, for this particular scene to see Iron Man flying around, to see a giant Ant-Man, which makes no sense, see a bunch of CGI characters running at other CGI characters, 10 years, 20 movies of hard work was put into this. But people who've seen the movies and understand the movies appreciate it more. But those who are dedicated to all things Marvel, the ones who have read the comics, who've watched countless hours of YouTube a little too much <laughs> about how they made things, the, the theories that are going to happen, and they know certain things that like, the hammer that Captain America is wielding is not his own. It's someone else's. And that hammer has only been held by two other people in all the different movies. I know this because I'm weird. <laughs> but only two other people have held it because the hammer is only be held by those who are worthy. So what this movie is communicating to us is that this humble man is worthy to wield a powerful weapon. But even the nerd fandom even knows this, that the words Avengers assemble have never been uttered in any Marvel movie till that one. Since 2008, when I was actually sitting in, well, actually that room, in 2008, when I was in high school, since till this moment, Avengers Assemble have never been said by anybody. But only those who are dedicated enough could really see this picture and have chills come down their spine, to even have a tear drop down their face as they're witnessing everything they dreamed about come to fruition. I did not tear up, I did choke up though. The passage we're reading today 
In Luke chapter 19, if you want to start turning there, if you want to open up in your, in your Bible app on your phone, or if you want to open up your paper Bibles, it should be on page 982 if you're using one of our Bibles. This is the triumphal entry. You'll see a headline. But for those who's casually reading it, if you pay attention just reading it, you maybe could appreciate the situation. Like, oh, this is a special moment. Like, I'm, I'm feeling a sense of pride. Like, yeah, Jesus, this is a good guy. He's a, humble, he's a humble person. He deserves praise as he's walking into Jerusalem. But those who know more realize he's walking into Jerusalem to his death. But those who even know more of the context Know that everything that's about to be said is trying to scream out to us this thing, that Jesus is king. But those who are truly dedicated to understand the fullness of God's word would understand that he is a humble king. And if we dedicate ourselves to understand this, this should blow our minds away. It should send shivers down our spine, even tears of joy to think about what is truly happening in this text in Luke 19. Because if we're reading this and we're, and we're not in awe, maybe it's because maybe you don't understand. Bless you. <laughs> but maybe you're feeling like, okay, I've read this before over and over and I still, I don't get it, Evan. I'm feeling I'm spiritually dry. Well, maybe it's time for us to actually dedicate the time, the effort, the energy to understand the minute details of Scripture that God has written down through man for us to understand who he is. So today, be amazed that God meticulously planned his exaltation. King Jesus, he did it through his humiliation. He was shamed for us. And as a result, respond. Respond by dedicating your entire life to his kingship. So as you're about to read verse 28, and, it's, and when Jesus, he says, and well, actually in verse 28, and when he has said these things, the context is this. Jesus, this has been a travel narrative that Luke um, has been giving to us. The author Luke has been giving to us for the last 10 chapters and sidebar, the chapters and verses were inserted for us to be able to better reference it, better reference the Bible and for us to be able to memorize it better. The last 10 chapters as we see it has been showing us a narrative of Jesus's travels from all the way up north of, from Jerusalem of, uh, in Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. He's trying to let the world know that he is king. He is the king. He is the king. And that's what we're about to read. So as we're about to enter this Christmas season, realize the, the baby boy that we're celebrating the birth of is the king that we're reading about. But remember, the underlying tone is that he's a king about to die. He's a humble king about to die. So please read Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. We'll continue to verse 40. And when he had said these things, he's just preaching about, he's just preached on some parables. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Why are you stealing my donkey? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. 
And as they were untying the colts, its owners said to them, why are you taking my colt? Why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you untying your colt, the colt? And they said, the disciples said, the Lord has need of it. God has need of it. So the owner, understanding, lets them have it. And they brought it to Jesus, God himself. And through, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down, down the Mount, Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, not just the 12, but all the ones who came up from Capernaum all the way down, all the disciples who'd been following him, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. But why? Because for all the mighty works they seen, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, Jesus, answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When I saw this scene in the big IMAX theater, I got giddy inside. I, I started cheering. I may have wept. I don't know. I choked. I definitely choked. But, but it's because I, I, I spent so much time understanding this particular moment. It was more than just punches and kicks and lasers and explosions and CGI aliens. It was hard work over 20 years. But we need to understand this moment has so many particular things coming together all at once to the point that if you remember at Revival 17, Pastor Mike actually preached on Daniel talking about this moment written 500 years later, predicting the time when a decree went out, the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on a specific day. And this is the day, the day that Jesus, the Messiah, is riding into Israel. So like Endgame, we need to understand the context, a better grasp, to better Marvel at what God is doing here. I know, wow, I just did that. So context, I'm going to have to go this quickly because there is so much here and I want to almost share with it all to you. So follow along. It's going to be really fast, but I promise you, well, I can't promise you that. I hope that this is, you're able to understand just the majesty of God right here and how much he's, he's trying to communicate to us. So again, verse 28, he said these things to go on ahead up to Jerusalem. Again, this is the travel narrative. This is something that, this is about to, this is a moment of climax. This is the climax of the travel narrative, but it's just the beginning of the ultimate climax of Christ on the cross. And so see that the, the, the see that this moment is like a climax, like end game. So with that being said, we're, we're going back to the text. On verse 30, why, uh, why a cult? Why is it a cult that is unridden? Because in the Old Testament law, in Numbers 19, Deut Deuteronomy 21, 1 Samuel 6, you don't have to write those down, but those are references to things that were unused and set aside for a sacred task. So this cult has never been used because it was set aside for a sacred task, like letting a king ride on it. But why a colt? Again, why not a horse? I mean, I've, I've questioned this for a while. Why not a horse? I mean, I think of that like a, a sweet horse or even a chariot. I mean, the Romans understood this, the Romans who occupied Israel, but the Romans would ride on a chariot triumphant as everyone's giving them glory as the emperor, as the king of the Romans. But Jesus decides to ride on a colt, but, 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 but why? Well, first, it's a reference 
to 1 Kings chapter 1. When Solomon was, it was anointed king, when he was given the kingship, he rode on a donkey. He rode on a colt. So this is, Jesus is not coming in as a conquering king, but he, he will come as a conquering king eventually. That's in Revelation. But he's coming in as a king awaiting, awaiting the crown that he deserves. As Solomon was a king awaiting his crown, he waited patiently and it was ridden in a, on a colt. He, Jesus is riding in on a cult, uh, the, uh, awaiting the kingship that he deserves. But not only that, he fulfills a specific prophecy that we'll get to in a second. But there is a bit of a difference. If you read the account in Mark and Matthew of the triumphal entry, he doesn't say king. It says son of David. It says Hosanna, the son of David, is arrived. Remember the context that Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience. He's writing to an audience, unlike Pastor Rod, who's like 1% Jew, apparently, <laughs> Matthew, Mark is written to Pastor Ron. Luke is written to, uh, to us, non-Jews, us Gentiles. It's for, us to, uh, for us to understand this, the son of David to a Jew means, like, oh, he's the king. I get it. For us, we're like, who, who's the son of David? Who's David? Well, David is king. He's King David, the one who slayed Goliath. But what Luke is trying to help us understand is that Jesus is, is the king. And just a small example, if you hear the last, if you're like, oh, this is so-and-so Trump. Oh, this person's related to Donald Trump. Oh, this is so-and-so Obama. Oh, this person's related to President Obama. Oh, this person may be Swift. Oh, I wonder if they're related to Taylor Swift. That'd be interesting. This person is West. Like, oh, did you know the guy who wrote Jesus as King? I got that. So that's the kind of the point. There's the difference when it says son of David. And if you read it in Matthew and Mark, you're like, oh, that's a discrepancy. No, it's not. Luke is helping us to try to understand that Jesus is the King. Now, why cloaks? Why are cloaks being put on the ground? Why cloaks on the donkey? Well, cloaks on the donkey for him to be able to ride, but why cloaks on the ground? 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. When King Jehu was anointed king, he rode, and they threw cloaks on the ground as well at his anointment. So again, everything should be firing in the, the reader's brain right now is that this should remind you of King Jehu. This should remind you of King Solomon. This should remind you of everything else, especially Zechariah 9.9. That's a passage you're going to want to write down. Zechariah 9.9. Jesus did all of this to fulfill prophecy for this reason, to show that he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is God in flesh, fulfilling promises over and over so by knowing this and understanding this more, when you reread Luke 19, this particular passage or the other passages of scripture, you should marvel at it. And that's our first point, Jerome North. Marvel at God's plan of his, of his own humiliation. Okay, you can see that. Marvel at God's plan of his own humiliation, his own, his own shame. He humbled himself from up high. Who, okay, let's be honest. Who's got a dirty room right now? Who did not make their bed today? So imagine, you can put your hands down, imagine that for dinner, Pastor Mike calls your parents and says, hey, I'm going to come over for dinner. And he goes, hey, AJ, hey, can you, I, want to show, I want to see your room. Show me your room. And AJ's like, oh, no, I don't want you to show it. It's messy. It's dirty. I don't want you to do that. Pastor Mike insists. He's like, I want to see your room. I'd love to see it. He comes and he sees that it's dirty. So he, he, to show his love for you, our head pastor, the head pastor of this church decides, you know, I'm going to clean up AJ's room. I'm going to make his bed. I'm going to, I see his smelly laundry. I'm going to do his laundry. I'm going, to, I'm going to clean it. I'm going to iron it. I'm going to fold it. I'm going to hang it up in the proper place. Not only that, I see the bathroom. It's a little dirty. You know what? I'm going to get down on my knees. I'm going to scrub the toilet. I'm going to scrub the shower. I'm going to scrub the sink. I hope if that ever happened to you, 
you'd be amazed, you'd be marveling that Pastor Mike, the head pastor of this church, is at your home cleaning your room for you because he loves you. He wants to show his love to you. But even more than that, we have a God who did more than that. But why did he do it that way? Just addressing the, the question that the, the person posed, but, but if God created new, new sinners, would, be, would it happen if he created us? Why did he do it? And if he tells us not to be selfish, isn't that him, him being selfish? Well, the thing is that God did it all for his glory. What well, not that selfish? Selfish means you're just so self-focused, you're not considering others. God is focused on his own glory, but he does care about others. He proved it. He died for us. Us rebel creation, us sinners, while we were enemies sinning against him, he still died for us. So he does care about us. So he's not the selfish that we think. Yes, he's focused on his glory because his glory is good and it's good for us. And he's thinking about us when he's fulfilling his glory and so why did he do it? Why did he pick a donkey that was unridden? Why did he have to do prophecy this way? Why did he have to die on the cross? Well, God wants to show who, us who he is. He wants to show his wrath, so he'll, he'll show his wrath. He wants to show his justice, he'll show his justice. If he wants to show what mercy truly looks like, he's gonna show what mercy looks like. He wants us to know what love is, so he shows his love in this way. So he has decided why, I don't know. But he has decided that this would be best for us to comprehend who he is. Not fully, because we can't understand God fully. But he has decided, I'm going to allow these things to happen in this certain way so that they can know who I am. And so we should marvel at that. But how do we marvel at that, Evan? All right, well, how do we marvel at that? Well, first, like again, like Endgame, like this passage, you've got to understand you have to understand. You have to understand his plan. What is his plan? His unrivaled goodness, his unrivaled sacrifice, his unrivaled love, and unrivaled achievement. And you have to understand his humility. Understanding his humility. If you read Zechariah chapter 9, if you look at the face value, you'd be confused, maybe, because it's talking about God calling out condemnation against Israel's enemy. How does this fulfill the triumphal entry? How does this fulfill it? Well, my question to you is, how hard have you tried to wrestle with that? How hard are you actually trying to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament? How hard are you really trying? Because I know some of you in here, you guys want to be the best Call of Duty players in the room. You want to be the best Fortnite players. You want to be the best Minecraft players, the ones who can create the most beautiful things in Minecraft. Some of you want to have the bestest of friends, people close to you to travel the world with. Some of you want to be in relationships or in, in relationships, and you're investing time and, and money and energy to get to know the, the, the person that you have an affection for. We spend time on our academics. You try to figure out the beauty, beauties of calculus and physics and biology, the beauty of English and history. You try, to, you try to master it, so you spend more time in it. You try to wrestle with it, even though you don't understand it yet. Some of you are diving into politics, diving in environmental causes. Some of you are just debating which of the best movies are, or that pineapple pizza is good to eat. Oh, I... The point is, how hard and passionate are you trying to understand who God is? 
the effort that you're putting into people, your school, your, your free time, your fun time, is it outrivaled by your passion and work to understand God? Are you reading your Bible every day? Are you meeting with your leader, asking them hard questions that you don't understand fully? Have you thought about hard questions about your faith? Or are you just assuming everything? Understand his plan. Understand his work. But understand his humility because his humility is, 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 is there in the text without being there. His humility in Philippians chapter 2, God emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being, in the, being born in the likeness of men. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas. It's baby Jesus. But baby Jesus is a humble, is God humbling himself to grow up into a humble man, a humble servant, a servant that's willing to die for his creation. So in a moment that we're, if we were riding on that donkey, it would be a prideful moment. We're like, yeah, this is awesome. But to the king and the creator of the universe, this is lowly. And he still deserves the praise because he didn't all humble himself in human form. He became obedient and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a response, as we marvel at what he's done, as we marvel at his humility, we should respond in being humble ourselves. Humble enough to say, I can't save myself. I can't do enough good to get myself into heaven. I can't make myself right before God. I can't make peace between God and I. Only Christ, who lived the perfect life, can do it. And that humbleness, that first part is to first to repent, to reject your sin, to reject what you think is right, to reject the things that, make, that you think is fun, the stuff that makes you feel good, to reject that and, put on, and to follow Christ and trust that his, de- his life is the life you should have lived. His death is the death you should have died. His resurrection, it was for you to prove that everything he did, he fulfilled perfectly. And so then you, you follow after him. He's now your king. And as a result, he tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us not look at the uh, just at our own interests, but the interests of others. The way to do that, you have to get to know one another. How well do you know your small group? How well do you know the people here? How well do you know the people not here? You have to spend time. You have to know what they like, what they don't like. Investing with them. But it's because you're marveling at his glory. And as a result of people marveling at things in general, they become dedicated. As we first humble ourselves and repent and trust in Christ, we become dedicated to his, to his kingship. If you want to go back to verse 37 of Luke 19, these dedicated disciples were following him. They didn't fully understand. They thought Jesus was riding in as a king to overthrow Rome. But they didn't realize he's doing something greater. He's trying to overthrow death. He's trying to overthrow sin. He's trying to overthrow the the broken relationship that we have with him. He's trying to restore him to us, to him. But still, they were dedicated enough to follow him the journey, I said, started up all the way in Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. 
to give yourself, that's about 122 miles north of Jerusalem. So imagine Jesus is doing some work in Ventura, California. If no idea where Ventura is, go to LA and drive another hour and a half north, roughly. He's doing miracles in Ventura. He's doing miracles in northern LA. He's in the heart of LA doing miracles. He's down through Long Beach. He goes to Huntington Beach and says hi to Pastor Bobby, swings over to Tustin, says hi to Compass Tustin. Um, he, said, he swings down all the way down to North County and South County to here. And all the people that witness the miracles, they're, they're, they're dedicating their lives to follow him, even though they don't fully understand yet, but we can fully understand him now. The works that they are boasting in, that Luke is to remind, of, remind us of, is the, is, is the works that Jesus healing the woman with the unclean, uh, uh, the unclean spirit. He's, he, he healed a man of a disease. He healed 10 different lepers. He healed a blind man. And if you read the account of John, he just did the, one of the greatest wonders to date. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so they witnessed these things. And as a result, they were dedicating their lives to follow him all the way, for some of them, over 100 miles to Jerusalem, praising him as the king, praising him that he's going to bring the peace of heaven. So once you and I fully understand what Jesus has done, we're going to dedicate our lives to him. Oopsies. I'm sorry about that. That was Pastor Mike photo. I'm sorry about that. I thought I was there. That was Pastor Mike, by the way. Point number two, True North. Point number two, dedicate your life to Jesus' kingdom. Point number two, dedicate your life to Jesus' kingdom and not your own. Not your own. There's people that we know in our lives who are dedicated. But for some of them, I know there's some Disney people who are extremely dedicated to all things Disney. I love Disney. I love going to Christmas at the Disney. And there's some of you in here who love Disney. And I'm not, this is not me trying to mock you. No, I actually look at you and I'm like, wow, that is some dedication right there. They have the annual pass. They have the top pass with no blockout date. They know all the intricate stories of how Walt Disney did this and that. There's a basketball hoop in Matterhorn. There, the, the fact that the, the, there's each land, original land, has a story. Like, fun fact, I learned this from a Disney fan, my, my sister who said that Blackbeard from Pirates of the Caribbean buried his treasure in Tom Sawyer's island and then retired into the mansion, and now he, he died in the mansion and now haunts it, hence the haunted mansion. Boom. That's from a dedicated fan. And these dedicated fans have these pins that they love to, to, to collect and trade. But so we know what dedication is, but my warning to you is that we think we can be dedicated sometimes. We think we're dedicated. We're here when not everyone's here at the kids' musical weekend. We've been to every revival. We go to small groups. We've repented and placed our faith in Christ. But don't take dedication for granted. Non-Christians are obviously not dedicated to Christ. But even as Christians, we have to fight for our dedication every day. This is something we have to fight for. Because even the overwhelmed Christian who has finals this week, if they go to Capo, a Capo Unified School, homeschool or, or private school, if, they, if you or in Saddleback, if your, your finals are coming, if you allow your finals and AP test to overwhelm you, you're not giving it to God, you're not giving it to one another. When Christ tell, tells us to bear one another's burdens, you're not dedicated to the kingdom of God. If you're allowing 
your desire for a relationship, or if you're allowing your relationship, if your relationship with your friends or maybe with someone that you like is not focused on trying to build one another up to glorify God more, and if it's just about you two hanging out, then you're probably not dedicated to God's kingdom. If you're just apathetic, you don't care, arms crossed, been here, heard this, done that, and you're not zealous or passionate to see God glorified, to reach other people. You just skip over campus clubs and say, I don't want to be a part of that. Then maybe you're not dedicated to his kingdom too. I can go on, people who are cynical, people who are grieving, people who are transgressing God's sins. All of us need to make sure we're daily dedicating our lives to Jesus' kingdom. Even as Christians, we have to fight for that. We have to repent. When we sin, we're not dedicated to his kingdom, and we have to repent. Yes, we're all justified the same, but our sanctification looks different. Our walk with Christ will look different. But if if you are in continual, unrepentant sin, then maybe you have never dedicated your life to Christ. Maybe you've never repented and surrendered. And you can do that today. Reach out to your small group leader. They're here to help you in that. But with that, how do we dedicate our lives to him? Like in the first point, we dedicate to know. We dedicate to try to understand who he is. We try to understand who the king is and who his, what, his kingdom, what his kingdom is. We have to understand it. We, so we, yes, we have to make sure we're reading our Bibles more. But more than just reading, we're actually asking God for his insight and wisdom because he alone has insight and wisdom. So before you read, we pray and cry out for understanding. And when we're reading, it's not just a chore. We're trying to understand and allow God to help us not to understand what's happening then, not just what's always true, but how can we do, apply this to our lives now? It's understanding what he's done in history through the, in the scriptures. The scriptures are history. What God has done in history. What God has done in others. So ask your peers. Ask them, what has God, God done in your life? For your leaders, ask your leaders. Your leaders have stories on stories to tell you. Say, what has God done specifically in your life? But you have to stop and see maybe what has God done in your life? Because even if you are a non-believer in this room, God has been doing stuff in your life. He's giving you breath. He's giving you clothes. He's giving you food. He's being patient with you so that you can repent today. But not only do we dedicate ourselves to know who our God is, we dedicate ourselves to obey our God. Because if we say that we love God, we do his commandments John 14, 15. If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But just like in verse 30 and 34, his disciples of, in Luke 19, verse 30 and 34, his disciples are dedicated and they're obeying him. They're doing a really bizarre task if you really think about it. Hey, go to this town. You're going to find a cult there. It's not going to be a probability. It's going to be a fact. Untie it. People might think you're stealing it. But if they think you're stealing it, say this, say it's for God. Everything will be fine. They're dedicated to do the things that they didn't fully comprehend, but they witnessed the power and miracles of Jesus of Nazareth. So they obeyed him and followed him then. And for us, we see even a greater work. He rose from the dead. So we need to obey him. Like when you know, we, we, we submit to the authority. So when your te- teacher gives you homework, you, you do it. When your parents give you chores, you, you do it. When he says, don't complain, you don't complain. When, 
We sit, when your leader says, stay with us at Christmas at the Disney so we don't lose you, it means staying with your small group leader at Christmas at the Disney so we don't lose you. If it means that there's an opportunity to say a dirty joke or a crude joke, you don't do it. When you have a temptation to cheat, you don't do it. When you want to get physical with a person that you're attracted to, you don't do it because you want to be dedicated to Christ and obey his commandments. But that dedication, again, first starts with your salvation. So make sure you've repented. Make sure you've placed your trust in him. And every day, seek to obey him. But lastly, in this point, to dedicate also is to obey the commandment to make disciples. If you're older, to teach the younger. Is dedicate to lead. Upperclassmen, this is my calling to you. Every single one of you needs to be helping the younger, the sophomore and freshman understand what it's like to be a Christian in high school. To teach them what it's like to be a Christian in the church, in this fellowship. If you're not doing it, you need to. But if you're not doing it, it's maybe because you're not ready to. Because you too need, in a sense, grow up. It's a hard question. It's a question that I asked my leaders. I've asked my father in, in the past, even as a 20-year-old man, I asked my father, Father, how can I grow up better? What am I lacking in? So ask your parents, Mom, Dad, where am I not? Where do I need to grow up in? Where do I need to grow? Ask your small group leader, where, where do I need to mature? What things do I need to let go and what things do I need to start doing? Ask Pastor Ron, ask myself, and let us help you grow into a man and woman of God rather than just a child. Younger, the sophomore freshman, be ready and willing to learn and even teach your fellow eighth graders in the narrow, say, hey, this is what it's like to be a part of True North. Because seniors, you're going to leave a legacy behind. Pastor Rod, myself, Abby, your leaders are most likely staying in high school. We've never left. We've, ever since we graduated, we stayed. But you're going to graduate and you're going to leave, but we're going to stay to help mentor and teach high schoolers what it's like to be in the church to be a Christian and be a high schooler. So what legacy are you leaving behind? Are you investing in a freshman and sophomore? Have you been through partners? I challenge every one of you up juniors to seniors right now, get through partners with your leader. If your leader's too busy, ask myself or Pastor Ron. If we're too busy, sign up on Partners Online and let a godly man or a godly woman at this church teach you what it's like to be a Christian here. Because you gotta leave a legacy behind. The sophomores and freshmen in the room are going to be taking the mantle that you are leaving behind. So teach them. Get them ready. Dedicate your life to lead. Actions do speak louder than words. But we still are needing to make sure that we utter words. The disciples, all the disciples, not the 12, were uttering words. They were saying, praise be the king. Praise be the king. Peace in heaven. And the words hit the ears of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees told Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They understood what they were saying. They, were, they understood that they were saying that Jesus was king. He was the Messiah that was promised. And that he was God himself. And the Pharisees, some of them maybe were thinking, that's blasphemous. You can't say that. That's wrong. Tell, rebuke them. They're wrong. 
Or maybe for others, they were fearful because, again, Rome, the empire of Rome, was ruling over them. It's like if Russia decides to invade the western United States and we're under occupation, but then we find that Ethan Strunk is directly descended to George Washington. So we hold him up and say, we found the descendant of George Washington who's going to bring us back to the United, everyone in the United States. Right, dude, the Russians are going to be mad, dude. You can't do that. So maybe these Pharisees, out of fear or anger, are telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples and to tell them to stop declaring. But Jesus answered him, it's like, if they were silent, the rocks around these inanimate objects would start singing and proclaiming the same words. You can't stop this. Point number three, true north. Declare his humble kingship to the world. Declare his humble kingship to the world. Bragging about humble people, that sounds a bit ironic. It's easy to do. When someone is so humble, when they're like giving the, the, the praises and yet they still humble themselves, it's easy to brag about them. There's an A-list actor. I don't think he's a very good actor, and I actually would never recommend his movies, but Keanu Reeves, A-list movie star, is a humble man to the world's standards. People brag about it. They actually have, there's like a list of like 10 most epic, humble things Keanu Reeves has done. One of them is, this is Keanu Reeves in a New York subway. He's a man. He's an A-list actor. Usually they have bodyguards, but here he is just with the people. There's other pictures I saw online, him him just hanging out with homeless people, him just talking to a kid, signing autographs. He doesn't care. He's like, I'm just another human. I don't, I'm not this, sure, I'm a star, but I'm no different than you. And there's a story, actually, that he, when he made a, a movie trilogy that made a lot of money, this is the time before Disney was around and they were making billions of movies every movie, billions of dollars every movie, excuse me. This movie made a billion dollars. So imagine a movie made like $10 billion today. And he got a salary. And his, the way his contract worked out, he earned like $85 million. And the thing is, he gave it all away. He gave it to, he's like, these people who worked on this movie, the special effects team, the stunt team, and, the other, and all these other people, they, they worked at the same amount of hours I did. They deserved the money. So overnight, these people became millionaires. Every person that worked on that movie got a million dollars. And they continue to brag about him today. We have a more humble person to brag about. It's not just an A-list actor who's given away tens of millions of dollars, which is great to brag about. We have the king of the universe, the creator of us becoming created But the reason why he did it was to grow up, to fulfill specific prophecies so that we can understand, understand that he is the king, he is God, but also to see him die by our hands, by our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. So this is an easy person to declare about because how many other kings have stepped down from their thrones? How many gods gave a step down from from the heavens? How many lords have abandoned their homes? Our God has. God has. If you believe in him or not, he is your God. So declare to him. When you go, when you go to Christmas break, declare about his humbleness. When you, when you see him, when you see your friends at school at, during finals, declare his humbleness to them. Your family who may not believe, declare to them. Your younger sibling or older sibling who's rebelling, declare his humbleness to them. It's an easy thing to declare about a humble king. 
but don't let the rejection slow you down. This point is straightforward. We need to evangelize. It's, not, it's more than campus clubs. Be involved in campus clubs. If there is no campus club, start one. Let me know. Let me help you help you. <laughs> she got it. Start your campus clubs. Go out and evangelize. This is an everyday thing to declare his humbleness. It's an easy thing, but people will reject you. People will reject you. The Pharisees, Jerusalem was rejecting Jesus. But don't let the rejection slow you down. I mentioned Philippians 2 already. Just like in verse 40 in Luke 19, the the rocks are going to cry out if these were silent. In Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. So we are commanded to go out and declare his humbleness. We are supposed to go out and evangelize, to share the gospel. So go do it. Even though your neighbor that you try to share will reject you, keep praying, keep sharing. Even though your, your, your classmate next to you might continue to reject you, keep praying and keep sharing to them. Maybe a, a teacher or someone at your school you're trying to share to, a, a staff, keep praying, keep sharing. If it's a friend that continues to reject, keep praying, keep sharing. If it's the bully or your enemy that is just driving you crazy and you finally had the courage to finally confess that Jesus is Lord to them and they just put you to the side and maybe beat you up, keep praying, keep sharing, keep declaring his humble kingship to the world. Don't don't let rejection slow you down. Keep doing it. Do it more than you think and do it more than you're comfortable with. But again, if you continue to know his plan, if you continue to know who he is, the more you know, the more confident you are. When people raise hard objections like these tough questions, you have an answer because you've been dedicating your life to him. And the more you do it, the more humble you should be. Because rejection makes you realize it's not up to us. It's up to God who's going to save. But we need to be faithful to declare his humble kingship to the world. And again, it's easy when you're passionate about something to share it. Every time Abby Lopez and I have a meeting with Pastor Rod, I learn something new about technology. He loves tech. And it's not an unhealthy relationship, actually. It's more of something I'm in awe of. It's something I want to potentially aspire to. But he knows tech really well, how to manipulate his iPad really well, how to use his keyboard. And he actually finds apps to make sure he can create his own short, shortcuts on his keyboard. He shows it off all the time. He goes, like, hey, if I hit these two buttons, boom, I'm texting my wife. I love you. Like every single week he does it. And it's awesome, it's amazing, I'm, I'm jealous, but again, I'm apathetic towards it because I don't love de- technology. I'm not dedicated enough to learn it, to spend the time to understand it, and so I'm apathetic towards it. But Pastor Rod is reaping the benefits of, of it. He's efficient, it allows him to do more, and I'm just trudging along, just trying to figure out how to type on a keyboard <laughs> because I refuse to dedicate to learn because I refuse to step back and marvel what tech can do. And as a result, I don't declare. So today, True North, before you go do something fun, you're with the fight for your free time and go on break, crack open your Bible. 
try to ask God to help you marvel at what he has done in it. If you have a study Bible, or if you go to esv.org, they have, they have the footnotes, I think, for you. If not, ask your leader, ask me. We can help you with that. But start, try to marvel today what God has done. And then dedicate to do what he says to do. And also, declare it to someone today. Declare it to a fellow believer. The, re- the reason why we're here is to encourage one another until the day of Jesus' return draws near. To encourage one another. Don't invest in this world. Invest in the kingdom of God. Don't do that sin. Actually fight that sin. Make sure, don't hold back your words. Declare it to someone. So share, remind each other of the gospel today. And declare his humble kingship today to someone who doesn't know. Tell them how you know a humble God and how great he is and share the gospel today. Be amazed that God meticulously planned his exaltation through his humiliation and respond today to your north by dedicating your life to his kingship. Let's pray.